If you have your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 23 today with us. Uh, Though it's just been a few months for us as we've traced out this theme of the kingdom of heaven through the gospel of Matthew, uh, by the time now we come to chapter 23, we are in the final week uh, of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, On Sunday, Jesus began this week with the triumphal entry as he rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, as people were praising him uh, and and welcoming him to their midst. Uh, The day after that Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple as this uh, prophetic um, parable played out of showing how the nation has lost its way uh, in regard to following God and, and what worship was designed to be. And then on Tuesday, where we were last week, we looked at this, um, this interchange between Jesus and the religious leaders as they ask him questions and he responds uh, as they try to trap him and trip him up, paving the way for him to ultimately be crucified. Today, as we pick up in Matthew 23, we're still on that Tuesday. As now it's Jesus' turn to answer some of those questions with uh, some statements of his own. This will be the last series of public proclamation that Jesus makes uh, in this gospel in front of the crowds and religious leaders. Now, Jesus has had confrontations with these religious leaders of the day, particularly the Pharisees, uh, throughout the gospel. And we know that these confrontations will ultimately lead to the crucifixion. And because we have this knowledge on this side of the cross, we tend to, to view these Pharisees or other religious leaders as the bad guys. You know, the story of the gospel, they are the ones wearing the black hats. But there's also something about uh, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these guys that, that lead me to a confession I think it's very important to give to you up front this morning as we look at what Jesus has to say to them. And the confession is this, hi, I'm Bryce, and I am a recovering Pharisee. Uh, now, if you've ever known anybody who has struggled with substance abuse, substance abuse as a part of their past, you would know that they never say, I am recovered. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm a recovered addict. Because to be in recovery is to be in this constant battle against the temptation to go back, to go back to the bar, to go back to the, the bottle. To be in recovery is a daily decision to stay the true course. And so standing before you today, I I state that I am a recovering Pharisee because there's a temptation in me to go back at times. That's not to say that Jesus hasn't done a great work in my heart over the course of my life, but given my natural inclinations, there is a tendency in me, a temptation, to go back, back to religious observance over genuine relationships. back to works over grace, back to looking good over living good. And so as we get into Jesus' words today that stand as a powerful rebuke of the hearts of these religious leaders, I stand up today knowing that these words are as much for me, if not more, than they are for you. But I also know that these words are not only for me, because I would venture to guess that I am not the only one that's a recovering Pharisee in this room this morning. Now, before you get upset that I potentially have labeled you as one of the bad guys of the Gospels, I want to take a minute to understand just who these guys really are. It would be easy to conclude, if you have any knowledge of the story of Jesus, that these men were corrupt politicians who seized power for the sake of power, who held on to their tightly held traditions for some modicum of control. It would be easier knowing that the end, the end of the story, that Jesus, his opposition to them will bring him to the cross, it would be easy for the, us to, to villainize them. But before we do that, I want to look at what Jesus says here and understand the point that he is making. 
You see, the Pharisees did not start out this way. The Pharisees, this group, began during a time in Israel's history where foreign nations were influencing them and pressuring them to forsake God, to forsake God's ways. And so the Pharisees started as this effort to remain true to the faith, to protect the law, to, to separate themselves from pagan defilement. And so it's for this reason that Jesus begins his rebuke of them by acknowledging their role, or at least where they started. Matthew 23, 1 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Jesus makes note that these religious leaders had started out with pure motives. They became the official interpreters of the law when Israel had no prophets or, or teaching priests to lead them in it. And so in that sense, these Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. The Pharisees had begun with this noble task of leading people in the study of God's word and adherence to the law, but somewhere along their line, they had mixed up their motives. Jesus says this way, again, starting in verse 1, the teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, not every Pharisee in Jesus' day was corrupt, as many of them are that we see, but a large majority of them had gotten to this practice of finding loopholes, finding areas where they could look good on the outside, look like they were good, religious, righteous people, but all the while their hearts were defiled within them. What's worse than that, though, is they made it even difficult with their strenuous rules and laws to make people, uh, make it difficult for them to follow God in a genuine way. I love the way theologian N.T. Wright describes it. Uh, he talks about an uh, idea of uh, getting ready for a camping trip. It was his kind of first real outing of this type, and so he went to a, a local camping store to kind of gear up. He said the salesman was very good at his job. He said he knew all of the latest gear with all the best features. He loaded it up with a weatherproof tent and maps and socks and, and waterproof clothing. When it came time for the boots, the salesman pitched the, the best pair that he had, dependable, sturdy, subtle, suitable for all terrain. With the cooking equipment, it was much the same story. The salesman knew that he needed the stove and the fuel and the storage boxes and the, the, the long-lasting but nourishing food. On and on it went down until he gets to the giant backpack to carry it all. And finally paying his bill, he went to hoist the enormous load onto his shoulders and he says this, he said, I tried to pick it up and swing it around on my back casually as though I did this sort of thing every day. An awkward moment. I changed my mind and turned around away from the counter, bent my knees a little to get to the right level and inched backwards and towards the huge pack. The assistant helped me get my arms into the straps. I straightened my knees and smiled bravely, all the while wondering if I could get out of the shop, let alone hundreds of miles through the mountains. He concluded the conversation with the store manager. He said, what sort of vacations do you have? To which the salesman replied, well, I just go to the seaside, bad back. I can't carry stuff like that. The Pharisees had become a lot like that salesman. They knew the law, the, the do this, the don't do this, watch out for this danger, remember to do this every day, on and on. And then from one point of view, it looks like wonderful devotion, like a, a lavish attention to the detail of the commandments that God gave to Israel. 
But from another point of view, it looks a lot like a salesman telling a hiker all the things he should carry, but never venturing out for a walk himself. You see, the Pharisees had moved from protecting God's law to placing heavy burdens, all the while finding unique ways to free themselves from the load. And so I want to caution us this morning to give this caution as Jesus pronounces these seven woes, these seven indictments on these religious leaders. And that's the challenge to resist the temptation to use this as an opportunity to look out there. It's very easy to approach a sermon like this as something where you say, man, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear that. No, instead, I think we need to allow Jesus' words to penetrate our hearts, to reveal the areas of our lives where we need to repent and allow him to shape us into who he wants us to be. And so with that goal in mind, to lead us to look more like Jesus, I want to pose three questions that reveal those areas of our lives where we need to allow our king to do a transformative work in our hearts. And so I want to frame these seven woes in in the midst of these three questions. And the first is this. Do our lives push people away from the kingdom? Jesus says this way, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make him twice a child of hell as you are. I don't think that there are any of us here this morning that consciously try to push people away from Jesus. If he has had any impact in our lives, we want others to experience the same freedom and joy and hope and grace that he brings and has brought to us. And yet, though intentionally maybe not pushing people away uh, in the way that we speak or the way that we uh, do things intentionally, I I think our lives can often push people away. Have you ever met someone and thought, if they were the only Christian that I'd ever met, then I don't think I'd want anything to do with Jesus. Again, I'm, I'm not asking you to conjure up someone in your mind because, again, this message is designed to be more of a mirror than it is a window. But there are probably people that you have met that have been so arrogant or prideful or stubborn or legalistic that you meet and think, if that's what Jesus is like, then no thanks. I think of it this way. For most of my life, my mom worked in banking. Uh, And there was one customer that everyone in the branch kind of dreaded dealing with. He was snappy and demanding. He was rude and and entitled, unkind and, and critical. And he was also a big volunteer at my home church. He was one of the first faces that you would see coming in the front doors. He ran our photo ministry, walking around, taking pictures of the different avenues of church life, always there to lend a helping hand. He would invite you you into church with a handshake, but outside those walls, he ran the risk of pushing people away from the kingdom. You see, the Pharisees believe they're doing God's work. Jesus says they, they sit in Moses' seat. And yet the problem is that they were so wrapped up in their own pride that they weren't willing to see the king extend, extending his kingdom offer right in front of them. They were missing what really mattered. They had all of the rules down, but they were missing out on a relationship with the king extending his hand of grace. And perhaps even worse, not only did they refuse to accept Jesus, but they were hindering others from him as well. 
They were focused on amassing their own followers and influencing them to their own agendas that they were pointing to themselves rather than the one worth following. And so the question to ask is, do our lives push people away from the kingdom? Do the way that we live and interact with others, does it show them the freedom that we have as members of this kingdom? Or does it show them what they don't want to look like? The second question I think Jesus is asking us through these woes is, do we major in the minors? In other words, are the little things a bigger deal than they should be? Jesus kind of provides us two examples of how the Pharisees have focused on this this ritual over truly pursuing the kingdom. They were experts at their religious duty, even down to the finest detail, but they missed out on the bigger picture of what God is doing. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and anyone who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Jesus pronounces these two woes for the ways that the Pharisees would use these deceptive practices. They kind of twist the rules for their own advantage. First, he says they are involved in deceptive oaths. This kind of complex system of of swearing, making promises, making oaths based on powerful systems and structures. And yet, like a group of schoolyard kids crossing their fingers behind their back, they would use this as loopholes to do what they really wanted to do. Likewise, they would have deceptive tithes. They're stealing this way to find these loopholes, and then they're tithing on it as well. And they were sticklers about it. They even tithed out of their spice racks. And you know that when you're cutting basil on your kitchen countertop to make a tenth of it go into the offering plate, you're serious about your righteousness. But while the Pharisees majored in the minors, they missed out on what God was really doing by a mile. Jesus says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, tithing is a good practice. We're called to do it. But when religious duty takes precedence over justice and mercy and faithfulness, then we've missed the heart of God. We've missed the true currency of the kingdom. Now, maybe you're wondering where these two kind of connect with us. I don't think anybody here is making oaths on the offering box. At least I hope not, because that's really weird. And I didn't see anybody kind of sprinkling oregano into it as I walked in today, because again, weird. But I think that we can still major in the minors. We can still get too focused on the little details of religious practice that we missed out on kingdom work. Church attendance, Bible study attendance, tithing, singing along and worship, all of those are good things. But if we use them as an opportunity to put all the gold stars on our sticker charts, and yet aren't loving our neighbors, reaching our communities for Jesus, 
and caring for one another and encouraging one another with grace and mercy, then we're missing out on the true greatness of kingdom life. Maybe the best question is a question truly of surrender. Because I think that's what these Pharisees were struggling with. They wanted to be in control of the nitpicky details of religious practice without true surrender and sacrifice. Do we major in the minors? Do we demonstrate a spirit of surrender to what Jesus asks of us as our King? Or do we cling tightly to the little systems and religious roles of our own kingdom? Last question I think Jesus leads us to ask of ourselves is, do our insides match our outsides. Jesus tells us by outward appearances, the Pharisees were everything that you could try to hope to be and want to be as a good and godly person on the outside. Verse 5, he says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. Jesus says they have all of these external markers of looking like godly people. He says they make their phylacteries wide. Some of you are thinking, I think I had phylacteries once. My doctor gave me an antibiotic for it, but that's not what this is. Uh, a phylactery was this little leather box that Jewish men would wear on their foreheads and on their wrists that would contain tiny little parchments and scrolls of Scripture. Now, typically, it was worn during the morning prayer time, but the Pharisees wore them all the time. And they make them nice and extra big so they could go out and proclaim, I, I love the law and I obey the law. I'm a good person. Look at me. Or they would make their prayer tassels that hung off the sleeves of their robes extra long so that people could see that they were the real deal. For us, it might be like throwing on your best three-piece suit and grabbing the biggest Bible that you could find so that everybody knows how super spiritual you really are. But regardless of how good they look on the outside, Jesus says it doesn't line up with the nature of their hearts. Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look good and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now again, I know that we can look at these areas and think, well, they might have been snares and struggles back in Jesus' day, but they're kind of a moot point now. I'm, I'm not wearing a Bible box on my head, and, and I'm not demanding that people call me rabbi. But I think if we stop and think about it, it can still be tempting to use our service, the things that we do externally, to make us look good internally, to draw attention to ourselves. Maybe it's something as simple as serving communion on a Sunday morning just so others can see us up front. I once in a previous ministry had a former worship singer say that she couldn't worship unless she was on the stage. And please don't think that this is just a you issue. I can be as guilty as anyone. It's easy when you have an audience week to week to allow your motives to get mixed up at times. But Jesus' kingdom is not one of empty image. It's one of heart transformation. And until we allow him to transform us from the inside out, then we run the risk of being pretty tombs full of bones, beautiful urns full of ash. 
On the outside, the Pharisees were squeaky clean examples of righteousness, but Jesus reveals the murderous rage that rests within their hearts. Verse 29, the final woe, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we have not taken part in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come in this generation. You see, Jesus is saying on the outside that Pharisees were shining examples of faithfulness. And yet, on the inside, in that very moment, they are plotting a course of action to crucify the king. Like I said earlier, the aim of these questions is to reveal the areas of our lives where we need to allow our king to do a transformative work in our hearts. In other words, what I want you to understand is that these questions are not meant to shame us, but to shape us to look more like Jesus. And depending on how we answer these questions, we might find ourselves in need of some heart surgery this morning. For Jesus to take a, a deceptive heart or a divided heart or a dead heart and give us a heart that beats for his kingdom. And the scalpel that is used to make the first cut into a major heart surgery is repentance. I know we use the word repentance a lot, but I think we can sometimes get confused on what it really looks like. I think of an old skit from Mad TV way back in the day. It pops up every now and then. I see it time to time. Uh, had Bob Newhart uh, as a psychologist. And a lady comes into his practice with all of her uh, problems, and the psychologist explains that he's very reasonable. He charges $5 for five minutes. Uh, after that, everything is free. And the lady says it sounds too good to be true, but she begins to unload her litany of problems, and in response, he tells her, I- I'm going to tell you the same two words that I tell all my clients. Are you ready? Stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. Just quit doing that. And I think that we think of repentance in much the same way as stop it. But biblically speaking, repentance doesn't mean stop it. It doesn't mean quit. It means turn around and return to me. Repentance isn't about muscling up and stopping our destructive tendencies through our own power. It's about total surrender to a king who loves us and wants to do a work in us. And we let him. Repentance isn't about trying better, it's about being His and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you as as you take a knee to the King. And so this morning, maybe what is needed, as you echo that sentiment, hi, I'm Bryce and I'm a recovering Pharisee, is repentance. What Jesus offers us is a life shaped by Him. Not shaped by performance or appearance, not shaped by ritual or rigor. It's a life shaped by surrender and sacrifice. It's a call to pick up our cross and follow him. And so maybe this morning you echo those same things and those questions you see, I need a heart surgery. I I want to be in recovery from this pharisaical way of life. 
And if that's where you're at this morning, I want to challenge you to lean into repentance. To lean into this desire, not to try to stop by being better, but to allow Jesus to do something in you that only he can do. Because trying to do better and look better is just going to be entrenching us in the problem to begin with. And so this morning, if you find yourselves answering yes to one or more of those questions, I want to encourage you to turn around, to turn to Jesus, to allow his spirit to begin a work in you that only he can do. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for decades or maybe you've not given your life to Jesus. Where all of us need to be is living that life of repentance. Because repentance is not a one-time act. As much as we turn toward Jesus, we have a tendency to turn back the other way. It's a constant action of returning over and over to the King who can do something within us that we could never do ourselves. That through the cross and through the resurrection, He has the power and through His Spirit that now dwells within us to do something within us, to crucify the life that we live and be raised in the newness of life in Him. If that's a decision that you need to make this morning, we would love to talk with you about that. We'd love to pray with you through that. I'll be up here during this next song. I'd love to talk with you. Our elders will be out in the back as you leave today. Grab one of us and and talk to us. Lean into this idea of repentance and letting Jesus do a work in us. That it's not about looking better. It's not about appearances. But allowing our king to bring us into his kingdom in a way that only he can. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And our prayer is that in varying stages of recovery of being pharisaical, being concerned with outward appearance, being concerned with majoring in the minors, the little nitpicky details that we feel we can control, at times, maybe by the way we live our lives, pushing people away from the kingdom, we come to you in repentance to say that we want to turn back to you, our King, that only you can do a work in us. And so, Jesus, we pray that as we take a knee before you as our King, you would fill us with a heart that looks like you, a heart full of love for the lost and hurting a heart full of justice and faithfulness and mercy, a heart that leans into what you've called us to do, that doesn't concern with outward appearances, but truly beats for you and for your kingdom. God, we pray that we would live a cruciform life, that we would have, through our repentance, given up our old way of life, and turning to you instead. Jesus, we thank you for being merciful to us in these times where we don't look like you have us to look. And through your grace to lead us to be more like you. This is our prayer today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.